Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. God is good, isn't he? What a beautiful day we've got. This is, I mean, seriously, if it's sunshiny and cool to the point where I can put a sweater or a jacket on, that's just my time of year, isn't it? Anybody else? It's cozy, it's cozy, it's so cozy, actually, that you might be tempted to, to just settle into your chair and kind of drift off a little bit, but I'm going to need you today, okay? I'm going to need you to be active, I'm going to need you to be vocal, I'm going to say, amen, church, and you're going to say, amen. 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 We're, we're, I'm excited about today's message because uh, we're jumping into part three of our series on Romans, the grace of God revealed. As we've said in each installment, this being part three, each installment, we've said Romans is the most comprehensive expression of theology in the entire Bible. Some call it the gospel according to Paul. The theme is the grace of God revealed, God's righteousness, our iniquity, and God's remedy through a five-letter word, Grace. Grace. As we have said each and every week, Socrates wrote a letter to Plato in 500 BC, and he said this. He said, It may be that the deity can forgive sins, but I do not see how. In this study, we shall see how. Amen? Amen. I have to sneak over here real quick because my monitor is not on. There we go. Deliberate ignorance was the theme that we left with last week. We ran out of time, so I had to kind of hurry and cobble through the end of the message, but we're going to back it up just enough so we can finish strong, not missing any of the Word of God. Sound good? As we left, Paul, in his letter, was setting up different straw men, different examples of people to get the attention of the Romans. As we discussed briefly, there was a group of, there was a group of Jews in Rome, in the churches in Rome. There were also a group of Pagan moralists, believe it or not, that is a thing, pagan moralists. And then there was the truly debased, the truly wild and debauched heathens living in Rome, which we have so famously heard about through all the generations, right? Paul was in the midst of targeting this group of people who had truly given themselves over to the fleshly desires, and that's where we leave off three different times over In verses 24, 26, and 28, we hear the words of doom appear. God gave them up. God gave them up, those who lacked a proper reverence for God. Let's begin with verse 28, shall we? And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind 
to do those things which are not fitting. Now, this is interesting. If you look at the Greek here, you see the word adokimos, which means counterfeit reasoning. Oftentimes, we'll think of just a debased mind, and we think, well, obviously, they're debauched, and there are these people that are we see them in the world today, obviously. They're just gratifying the flesh is number one for them. That's what they're all about, right? But really, in the Greek, he's saying their reasoning is counterfeit. You see, people don't lead themselves into that sort of lifestyle and behavior without there being flawed reasoning in their thinking. They have counterfeit reasoning to do those things which are not fitting. Now, famously, uh, other translations here uh, rather than debased mind, we'll say reprobate mind. And that's a term that I've heard uh, repeated over and over again in my childhood growing up in the church. Uh, my wife is well in the church. I reprobate mind, right? So can, we, can I see this first graphic? Can I see this first graphic here? A reprobate mind. What is a reprobate mind? Well, it's a mind, as, as the Greek would suggest, counterfeit reasoning. It is void of judgment, Pagan humanity rejected the full knowledge of God, and that's the main point that Paul is trying to make here. In a sense, they put God, in other words, out of their mind. So the, no the notion of judgment and reasoning, they'd rather not think about it. You understand? They'd rather not think about it. God's responding judgment to them, as we have read just now, and in verse 24 and 26, was abandonment. Not that he'd turn his back on them, and if they ever turned back to him, he wouldn't be right there, as we've, we've learned ever since Sunday school, as the Word of God made, makes very clear to us. No, but he said, if you're going to go that way, then go your, that way. What can I do? What? My wife's smiling at me too large. I'm distracted, sorry. I've got a huge crush on her is the thing. So, so God's... Anyway, I get back to what I was thinking about. God's responding judgment was abandonment to them, Right? to a depraved or rather disapproved mind, which expressed itself in attitudes, it's on the screen, attitudes and actions that ought not be done. Literally, what is unfitting or proper. It's a technical stoic word of the Greeks at the time. A reprobate mind, what ought not be done, they're abandoned to it, left to it to their own devices by God. Verse 29 being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetedness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Not a litany of things you want to be said about you, certainly, right? Well, here is the mental vacuum that is created, church. And this is the mental vacuum that is created by dismissing God. It was filled. And in, in the Greek here, it's the perfect tense. It implies it is filled full their minds with five forms of active sin. Can we see that if it's not on the screen? My little monitor is not working up here, guys. I don't know if somebody can help me with that. But there's five forms of active sin. 
unrighteousness, which is wrongfulness, fornication, which is immoral sex, wickedness, which is hostile evil. And you see all the Greek words to go along, so you can check me up on this. You don't have to take my word for any of this. Maliciousness, which means you desire to injure another. These five, in turn, then express themselves in more specific types of wickedness. Envy, which is jealousy. Murder, which is slaughter. Debate, which is to quarrel. Deceit, obvious deception. Malignity, which is evil nature and whispers, silent slanderers. Verse 30 then continues. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, despiteful. Violent just means uh, uh, despiteful or insolent in other translations. Proud, boasters. In, this one really stands out, doesn't it? Inventors of evil things. Disobedient to parents. Remember who Paul is talking about right now. He's writing this letter. He's speaking to uh, to. Uh, to the Jews, and to the moral pagans, and he's making an example of somebody who even the moral pagans would agree have gone too far with their lasciviousness. Insolent there in the Greek is the word hybristus. In other words, one who behaves with humiliating and unconscionable arrogance Hear that. Humiliating to themselves, actually, and unconscionable arrogance to those who are not powerful enough to retaliate. Do we see any of this spirit active and alive today in the world? I would say yes. C.S. Lewis wrote this in his famous work, The Problem of Pain, in 1940. Page 115, he records, The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom. Think of that, the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. If you're wanting some of these notes, by the way, you can always email me, chad at chadrandall.com, and I'll, I can send you the notes. Also, they have been uploaded to the Life Story Church family page. If you have your mobile device, you can go in there and look at them right now. Verse 31 and verse 32. Let's finish out this chapter. He continues, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God... Remember last week's sermon, they knew God at one point. They knew of him. They're without excuse, right? Knowing the righteousness, righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. That takes it to a whole nother level, doesn't it? You have to understand here, and if that, that last line doesn't make the point clear enough, let me expound on it a little bit. It, Paul is not talking about people who, with, who struggle with a sin here or there. Pick a sin off the list here. Oh, I have done that before. I'm so sorry and ashamed. I've repented of it. I might even still struggle with it, but the key word is struggle. They don't struggle. They have given their minds over 
Not only, they are aware that what they're doing will bring the judgment of God upon them. They know that for they have known God. Yet in their counterfeit, debased, reprobate mind, knowing the judgment of God will fall upon them, not only do they continue to do it, live it, lifestyle, they encourage others to do so. Makes me think of the scripture, Jesus in Capernaum says, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown out into that sea. Does our culture approve of such behavior as we just read off? Yes? I'd say by and large, our culture does approve of such behavior. We see it entering into the consciousness of our schools. We see the transgender issue, the LGBTQ. There's probably a few more letters on there by now, right? We see that whole movement being pushed upon our children, although there's such a small percentage, small percentage of the population, you'd think that they're at least 60% if you just watched TV and the commercials with your kids, right? Can I see this next quote? This whole pattern of evil becomes the lifestyle. Understand that. Underline that in your mind. It becomes the lifestyle of people who continue to do, which means present. the present tense implies, Paul's present tense in the Greek, implies that they are continuing to do, or habitual in action, these very things in open defiance of God, a defiance aggravated, Abe, by fully knowing, fully knowing, that such things deserve death, and B, by encouraging others in the same lifestyle. Such extremity of human rebellion against God fully warrants God's condemnation in a moral universe. How guilty is mankind with this in mind, with this brought to light? This is what Paul is trying to accomplish, so let's ask the question. How guilty is mankind as it stands in contrast to the righteousness of God. How guilty are you? Is there enough evidence to convict you? Have you asked for a pardon yet? What are you waiting for? Again, this is not a description of those who are damned forever. We said this last week. But of at present, but of the at present lost. At present, they are lost. At present, they have given, them so, uh, given themselves over. This is a present judicial action of God on the earth where he lets men go their own way. Thankfully for them, now is the acceptable time. It is the dectos year of the Lord. The acceptable time, the judgment of God, the vengeance of God has not yet come. Jesus didn't finish that sentence, didn't finish that reading in Nazareth. 
It's the acceptable time where salvation and free-flowing favors of God still abound to those who would simply ask. It is not yet too late. So, moving into chapter 2, with your Bibles open, your Bible apps open, are we ready? This is where I wanted to begin. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. Whoever you are, right? Whoever you are who judge, you are inexcusable. Now, Paul is about to deliver for us a, what the ancient uh, literary is called a diatribe. Okay, a diatribe in where he places questions or objections into the mouth of an imagined critic. All right, stay with me. He's putting those into the mind of an imagined critic that he might answer or demolish said questions or objections to what he's bringing forward. He is impassioned as he speaks. Impassioned. His words have to leap over a gap to catch up with his thought, and you'll see it. You can imagine how Tertius, how Tertius's pen labored as he was taking, writing down the letter for Paul. As, as Paul was speaking, Tertius was writing this letter of Romans, and you can feel the passion as, as Tertius's pen is trying to keep up. He labored to keep up with Paul's dictation. F.F. F. Bruce points out how in uh, certain impassioned sections, his Greek is full of breaks in construction and unfinished sentences even because he can't keep up with Paul. Having just thoroughly, and I would say pretty thoroughly, right, condemned the degenerate pagan man, Paul now sets his sights on condemning the moral man. So you moral men and women in here, you might have been feeling pretty good about yourself, right? That was the point. That was the point. Now he sets his sights on the moral man, be it Gentile or Jew. So don't miss this. This is the crux of what he's trying to communicate. I'll say it again, having just thoroughly condemned the degenerate pagan man, Paul now sets his sights on condemning the moral man, be he a Gentile or Jew. If you don't understand what Paul is doing in the, con uh, in the context, literarily, chapter 2 can be very confusing. So you have to understand what he's doing. He has just taken down degenerates. Now he's going after moral man, be it Gentile or Jew. Paul first goes after the Gentile moralist. Contrary to one might think, like I said, not all of Rome was degenerate, although that's what it's famous for. There was a man named Seneca. Now, he was a pagan moralist contemporary of Paul's. He would have known very well who Paul was. He likely would have been familiar with Paul's writing. Paul certainly would have been familiar with Seneca. Seneca was in the Roman Senate. Seneca was a Roman uh, a moralist. He was actually uh, an advisor of Nero when Nero was a boy. He would have been exactly the kind of person that Paul would have been 
addressing here. To give you a little bit of insight here, let me share you a quote of Seneca's. He said this, he said, It pleased me, said Seneca, to inquire into the eternity of the soul, nay, to believe in it. I surrendered myself to that great hope, but he also says, when the day shall come which, shall, which uh, I shall part this mixture of divine and human here where I found it, I will leave my body, myself I will give back to the gods, little g, fallen angels, right? Sounds like he's, you know, there's a lot of good morality there. He's thinking about, you know, living a good life and moving on this life, so on and so forth. Seneca taught the loftiest principles of duty, the loftiest principles of duty that the pagan world had ever known up to that point. As I said, he was Nero's boyhood mentor. Not only did Seneca exalt great moral virtues, he exposed hypocrisy, he acknowledged that evil vices exist in all men. He, he was said to examine himself daily. He ridiculed vulgar idolatry. And he assumed the role of a moral guide. But, but, and this is the point here, listen. Too often he tolerated in himself Vices that were no different than those he condemned in others. Case in point, when Nero murdered his mother, which he did, he said nothing. He stood by in silence. He didn't want to get in that mess. He didn't want to step out too far for truth on that one. And that was a, a decision that would later haunt him as after a failed assassination plot by members of con uh, Congress, and the Praetorian Guard, a plot that actually sought to have Seneca replace Nero as emperor, Nero had him killed. Nero chose suicide, the method of death, and not the Clinton kind of suicide that we're familiar with in this country. Think Japan, fall on your sword. But we see men and women of this dis disposition among us today, don't we? Very moral. Very moral, godless, yet moral somehow. They don't profess to be Christians. They may be agnostic or even atheist, but they're generally moral somehow. They have claimed the moral high ground, as a matter of fact, in this day and age, citing their intellectual acumen or compliance to the state. They derisively, derisively look down on most as they mask their own insecurities, they virtue signal to the rest of the world how moral they truly are. Yet they are hypocrites. Hypocrites. You see, the Jews and the Pharisees throughout the, the Word of God, certainly in the New Testament as we study the New Testament, the Jews and the Pharisees get most of the flack for being arrogantly puffed up and self-important, and Paul will get into them in a minute, but they don't have the market cornered on pride, you see. And Paul makes that very, very clear here. So application question before we jump back into the scripture. What do you tolerate in yourself that you condemn in others? 
Do you play favorites? Do you turn a blind eye? We must never, never underestimate the human capacity to rationalize. We can talk ourselves into just about anything. Back to verse 1. Back to verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, wherever you are, whoever you are, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Verse 2. But we who know the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And as we move through the text, all the way through uh, verse 2 through 18, we're going to see seven principles of judgment. Can I see that on the screen? Take a picture of it if you'd like. If you haven't got your notes off of the family page, this is on the notes. Seven principles of judgment. I'm just going to leave it here once, so take your time with it. Um, because I'm not going to keep coming back to it as a guide. We're just going to move through each point, okay? Seven principles of judgment. Principles of judgment. God judges according to truth. He judges according to accumulated guilt. He judges according to works. He judges without respect of persons. He judges according to obedience, not knowledge, to obedience... He judges reaching the secrets of men's hearts. And he judges according to reality, not the stories you've told yourself to talk yourself into whatever you've talked yourself into. This should make us a little uncomfortable. That's the point. That's the point. Verse 3. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things, doing the same thing that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think that you would escape? I mean, really, you? You thought you were going to escape. <laughs> the death chamber of self-righteousness is open to each and every one of us. One of my favorite quotes of all times, and I've got two of them for you today, come from uh, Dr. Chuck Missler. He said this. I use this all the time in conversation. The only barrier to receiving truth is the assumption that you have it already. If you'd like to try this theory, try convincing somebody of something when they think they already have the answer, right? Seriously. Anybody in here uh, looking forward to talking politics over Thanksgiving? Other than Chuck and John? <laughs> he also said this on the same tile. The principle that keeps us in eternal ignorance is condemnation before investigation. How true is this and how rampant is it in our society today? Verse 4. 
Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Repentance, metanoia in the Greek, means to change your mind. You didn't believe. Now I believe. I didn't believe that the cross was a thing and that Jesus really died for my sins and that that he really paid my debt in full, but now I do believe the tomb was empty. Metanio. It is his goodness that leads you to enlightenment, that specific enlightenment. Do you not realize that his goodness, Paul says, is intended to give you an opportunity to change your mind? Verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Beware, Paul says, of despising his goodness and presuming for yourself his mercy. If instead of repenting, you maintain a hard, impenitent heart, then be sure you are storing up for yourselves an accumulation of divine wrath which will be discharged on the day of vengeance, the day of his judgment. Thomas Jefferson said this in 1781. He said, I tremble for my country when I recall that God is just and that his justice will not sleep forever. Verse 6. Who will render to each one, each one, according to his deeds? Now this, this, church, this verse, this one verse even right here, gets people in a mess all the time. Honestly, like I said, one of my favorite things about the the fact that we're doing this study is that we're we're doing it... uh, in the format that we're doing it is that we're not just grabbing one part of it, we're doing it in whole so we can see first Paul is talking to the degenerate, now to the moralist, then it'll be the Jew in, in momentarily, right? Understanding the context of what he's trying to communicate to these people rather than just taking scriptures out of context and saying, that's been me, uh-oh, I've done that, oh no, God's wrath is coming for me, Right? He will render to each one according to his deeds. You get the visual, right? I'm standing all alone before God and he is not happy with me. I've got to answer for all of my deeds. There have been some pretty questionable ones, I'll be honest, right? Just me? You get the visual, right? Who is he talking to? Who will be at the great white throne judgment. Church, do you know? Well, let me... Qualifying question. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Do you believe he died on the cross for your sin? Do you believe that sacrifice was enough to atone for your debt? Do you believe he rose from the grave on the third day? 
that God the Father accepted that sacrifice as payment. Who will be at the great white throne judgment? Not you. Not you. Not you. Judgments of God. Can we see that graphic? We see different judgments of God throughout the scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 20, the judgment of Israel at Christ's second advent. Matthew chapter 25, the judgment of the Gentiles at Christ's second advent. The Bema seat judgment that the Paul is strangely excited about being before, right? That's because that word Bema in the context what Paul is talking about isn't an elevated platform of a judge looking down. He's speaking in athletic terms, which were so famous to the Greeks, of a podium rising as one receives an Olympic medal. That's the platform you stand on at the Bema seat judgment to receive your crowns. So we all will stand before God There is a judgment for us, but it is to receive rewards for a life well lived. And then lastly, the great white throne judgment seen in Revelation chapter 20, where everyone who is not covered by the righteousness of Christ, therefore, have only their own righteousness to cover them, will stand before God, and their own righteousness is found lacking. Verse 7, let's keep going. Render to each one according to his deeds, verse 6 into 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now, these are general characteristics of those who are saved. These are not meant to be painted as a way to salvation by Paul, certainly not, verse 8. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath for them. Verse 9, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. This is the clean sweep of the fruits of ingratitude, right? Tribulation and anguish, indignation and wrath of the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek Forgiveness, church, and this is the point, and eternal salvation are completely, completely, completely reliant upon God's grace. Judgment throughout the word of God, uniformly throughout the Bible, is always passed in accordance with what men and women have done. For the Jew, they will be judged by the law. For the Gentile, having not heard the law, they will not be judged by it, rather they will be judged by the knowledge of truth that was available to them. And in chapter 1, Paul makes that very clear what that was. The heavens above, chapter 1, verse 20. Evidence of who he is, evidence of creation all around you. The moral law that is written within them. You know what is right from wrong, whether you know Jesus or not, because he wrote it on your hearts. Verse 11, he says... Essentially, Jew or Gentile, whether you're judged by the law or judged by the the moral law written on your heart, verse 11, there is no partiality with God's. In other words, we're all toast. I was going to say something else there, but... 
my better nature got the best of me. In other words, we're all cooked. How about that? We are all cooked, and the oven is hot. Verse 12, for as many as have sinned, as many as have sinned, and this word here in the Greek, it's an aoristic uh, sense. It means once and for all here. He's not talking about just the little sins that you do, like I, you know, lied to my mom about this. Why did I even lie about that? I don't know. Okay, that's a sin, right? He's not talking about sins that you do. He's saying the once and for all sins, understanding sin is the, the sin that, in the sense that our, our, we are in broken covenant since Adam. We are in sin. There is sin in our bodies. There is sin in the world. Then there is the sins that you do. Paul is talking about eternal once and for all sin here, okay? For as many as have sinned, so it's, this, this cannot mean simply those who have committed a sin, all right, but have made a life choice of sin. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in law will be judged by the law. Verse 13, for not, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So this is great. All you have to do is the law, right? This is so important here. If you, just, if you take these scriptures out of the context, I'm just telling you, if you're going to read chapter 1, You've got to read all of chapter 2. If you're going to read chapter 2, you have to read chapter... You, they are one idea. You can't pull many different ideas out of here and make it work for your sermon, okay? They are one idea here. Do you see what he's doing? Remember who he's talking to. Remember the diatribe, right? In the beginning, he's built the straw man of the moral pagan. And now he's brought the moral Jew into light by contrasting the two of them together. He brilliantly makes points on many levels. Doers of the law, not hearers of the law. Doers will be justified. What Jew can fulfill the law, however? What pagan can avoid breaking the law of consciousness, of their conscience? Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Law of conscience. Conscience. See, the Jews looked down on the Gentiles. They looked down on the Gentiles, partly because they did not have the revelation of God's will in the Mosaic law. So again, Paul is pointing out that there are moral Gentiles who do by nature things that are contained in the law because it's written on their heart to do so. Verse 15. They are a law to themselves, verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between them their thoughts accusing or else excusing, if they're able to somehow never choose wrong, or else excusing, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Okay, this scripture does not suggest 
as some have supposed, that if you've never heard of Jesus, okay, you'll hear this in universalist doctrines, that those people who have never heard of Jesus, you'll go to heaven because you've tried to live right by your conscience. Nay, it is not saying that. To the contrary, Paul unequivocally, poetically, passionately, brilliantly makes the point to them that whether they claim to have a knowledge of God or claim to have no knowledge of God, they are without excuse and their faith in their own sense of morality can't save them. Because their own consciences condemn them. Now let's read out the rest of the chapter. We've got five minutes. We can do this. You ready? I want to start on chapter three next week. So let's do this. (laughs) Paul makes one final grand point to the Jews. And you want to talk about being out of breath. Let's do this. Verse 17. Indeed, you are called Jews and rest on the law and make your boast in God, verse 18, and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, verse 19, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, verse 20. An instructor to the foolish, a teacher of the babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. Verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? The... uh, King James says, commit scarilage. That phrase, commit scarilage, means to traffic in idols. Verse 23, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? And this harkens to Galatians chapter 5, verse 3. Every man that receives the circumcision, Paul says, must obey the whole law. If you break one law, you've broken the whole law. This is very much in view here for Paul as he writes this. Verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Whoa. What a charge. Paul is actually quoting Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5 here in the Septuagint translation. Paul has nailed, nailed, nailed. He has spent, up until this point, the whole introduction of the letter, he has nailed the pagans, and the Gentiles. He wants to make sure that there are no misconceptions here on the part of his Jewish readers who had their pride in their law and culture. No misconceptions. Verse 25, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. If you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Verse 26, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirement of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Verse 27, 
And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. No, verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, which refers to the written Torah, whose praise is not from men but God. The true Jew, in other words, is one who is circumcised of the heart, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, when you believed your heart was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, guaranteeing your adoptions as we see fully legally adopted heirs of the kingdom of God. The true Jew is one who is circumcised in heart, who has judged his sinfulness, in the sight of the Lord, and who now seeks to walk in accordance with the revealed will of God. So in closing, I say this. If you were to die right now, if Jesus came on the clouds this afternoon, and he might, <laughs> would he receive you into the banquet hall? into his arms? If you say yes, I ask why. Is it because you're no worse than the next guy? Is it because you do your best to be a moral and upright person? Have you really put your trust for eternal security on your own ability to live moral enough in the sight of a holy God? You see, once we grasp that we're sinners dealing with the holy God, that's everything. Once we realize that we're dealing with the holy God whose righteousness and justice cannot be compromised, then we can begin to understand and accept the solution that God has given us. And if you don't understand why he can't give just a little bit, I mean, I'll ask you this. Should God be okay with somebody stealing from you just a little bit? What if they beat up your wife? Should he be okay with that because it only happened once? Doesn't sound like a righteous God to me. He can't be okay with any of it in the context of a moral universe. How about your religious types out there? Have you lived the law? Have you lived the Bible? The standards you set up for others, do you live up to them yourselves? Not even breaking one of them. You know, religion is man proving himself worthy to God. That's not what we're dealing with here. God has come to us to say, you know what? You'll never be worthy, so let me make up the difference. Last quote, and we'll close. Last graphic, we'll close. We'll invite Leith forward. God declares men righteous. Not by faith is the procuring cause, for the blood of Christ was that. Not by faith as the putting forth of a work, much less by the keeping of divine commands, however holy and just, but out of reliance upon his own word as true and that alone. And thanks be to God, it is his righteousness and not our own that covers us, 
before the Lord. Amen? With every eye closed and every head bowed here this morning, maybe you're one who believes in Jesus, has believed in Jesus, has even gone to Sunday school, even come to church. Perhaps you're one who reads passages like this and thinks, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of all of this. Oh God, how could you accept me? Maybe you struggle with the confidence that he even does. You understand he's not accepting of your righteousness. I'm sorry. But there's good news. It's not your righteousness that you go before him with. For Christ has died for your sins. And he said, come to me all those who are weary, those who are burdened. Cast your cares upon me and I will give you rest. And by faith, your faith in him, your faith in what he accomplished at the cross and the empty tomb, he robes you with the righteous cloak of Christ. When God the Father looks at you, he sees only his son, his perfect and righteous and blameless son. That's what he sees in you. In your iniquities, he is cast into a sea of forgetfulness. Rest in him. Rest in that truth. If you haven't, if you struggle with it, rest in it. It's only when you're resting in it that he can really begin to do that work in your heart. You'll hear his voice so much more clearly. We realize the utter state of our dependency on him, the completeness of our guilt. We ask for the pardon. When we are free men and women only by pardon, we have a tendency to stop judging others for things that we do ourselves. We push on, endeavoring to be more like him. So with every eye closed, every head bowed, if you're here and the Holy Spirit's moving on your heart today and you need to lay something down, whatever it is, whether I just talked about it or it's something completely different, raise your hand right now. We're going to pray together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And if you're here or you're watching online, we're going we're gonna to surrender our hearts this morning. If you've never done that, if you've never truly understood what Jesus is all about, and maybe you just heard it this morning, we want to pray with you as you metanio, you change your mind and you fix your eyes on Jesus. If that's you, you're here, no one's looking around, just raise your hands. If you're watching online, thank you. If you're watching online, let us know. We want to pray with you. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading Paul so masterfully that we would be the beneficiaries, Lord Jesus, of this clarity that you bring us, Lord, this understanding of who you are, what you've done, how you love us, the lengths that you have gone to to bring us to the, an end of ourselves, that we may surrender our hearts and our souls at your feet.
and say, have your way, have your will. We just want you, Jesus. More of you, Jesus. Receive the prayers of your people here this morning, Lord. Give them enlightenment. Give them encouragement, Father. Spark gratitude in their hearts to lead them into the work that you have already prepared for them to walk into, to glorify you, and to serve your kingdom as ambassadors, Lord. Ambassadors of the good news, the gospel of grace, that by faith alone, we become your sons and daughters. Thank you, Jesus. Now let's all pray together. Let's say this out loud for those who are saying it for the first time or in a renewal aspect. Let's pray, church. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you love me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe the Father received that payment and that it was more than enough. Holy Spirit, come into my heart. Seal me. Guarantee my inheritance in the kingdom. Walk with me all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. Go before you. Follow after you. Walk alongside of you. Lead you in grace and knowledge of his word and prosper you in all you do. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, we love you guys. Thank you.